Welcome to the Renew the Arts podcast, where we discuss the role of art and creativity in the church and in the world. We are Michael Minkoff and Allison Knight, your hosts for this art history theme season three. Our mission at Renew the Arts is to liberate Christian creativity. At renewtheArts.org, you can see how you can get involved in the creative revival that is currently happening in the church. In the last five years, we've given away more than $200,000 in sponsorship value to Christian artists dedicated to their craft and to their faith. If you like what we're doing, please support our efforts by joining our patron community and perhaps by sponsoring a podcast episode. For more details, visit our website or reach out via email. Hey, Michael. Hey. How are you? I'm pretty good. Did you have a good Valentine's Day? Yeah, it was great. Uh, Vanessa and I went for a hike. We just sat there on a mountaintop in silence, soaking in the overwhelming sublimity of God's natural order. Wow, that sounds really romantic. It literally was. <laughs> this is Isn't It Romanticism? Romanticism. So romanticism. Mm -hmm. You know, typical cliches of romanticism. Highly emotional, irrational. Uh, But today we're talking about romanticism and it really is not those things. It is emotional, but it is far more. Yeah. Um, And it's certainly not romantic in the sense like red roses and bubbly romantic. No, mushy gushy. It might have some of that, but... That's not the heart of it. No. Yeah, no. Definitely not. Yeah, it, it is uh, rational, and it it's emotional, and it's purposeful. And so we're going to dive into romanticism today. And before we do that, though, we should probably catch you up on what happened between Baroque art and romanticism. Uh, last episode, we talked a lot about Baroque art uh, being you know, kind of this breaking away from the Renaissance. It was far more emotional. It was dramatic. It was um, expressive. It was authentic. And the Baroque era ends with a period called Rococo, very French period of art. It was fluffy. It was aristocratic. It was full of romance and eroticism. It was highly ornamental. Uh, you definitely see that in their architecture. It was rather frivolous, honestly, and kind of gaudy. Definitely loved excess. They mm. loved excess. They loved material. They loved uh, soft pastels, and they just were obsessed with beauty and grace. And Would you say like maybe uh, like Louis the Fourteenth's uh, classic gold palace, yeah, just Marie Antoinette, yeah, just, yeah. Yeah, if you want to think of Rococo, think Louis, Marie, Antoinette, yes. Decadence. Decadence, total decadence. And so, really, the Baroque era ended with this decadence, and the period of art following um, was directly influenced by this, and it was actually a revolt against Rococo art. It was called neoclassicism. Uh, and we're going to let Dr. Sachs share a little bit about neoclassicism. What neoclassicism is relative to romanticism is that I call them fraternal brothers of the same mother. They're both the product of the Age of Enlightenment. What happens at the end of the 18th century, and you're all familiar with the end of the 18th century, the American Revolution, 1776, where we declared independence in 1776, 
and then 13 years later, the French Revolution, 1789, they are um, rebellions against the aristocracy. So that gives birth to a new form of art called neoclassicism, which is very political and also very scientific, like the Renaissance. By the end of the 18th century, Romanticism says, we don't want to do that. We don't care about politics. We don't care about all those intellectual things. We want to express emotions because the modern world is full of tragedy. And many paintings and many sculptures are about human tragedy. And that's about, it's a far cry from human intellect. Yeah, by and large, neoclassicism was, again, turning back to the antiquity of Greco-Roman art. Um, neoclassicism means new classical. It was uh, coinciding with the Age of Enlightenment, which was an intellectual philosophical movement uh, that was heavy on um, political revolutions, on liberalism. It was maybe trying to recover a little bit of the collective program hmm. of the Renaissance and Baroque era that yeah. it felt like it sort of lost its way in all the sensual decadence of Rococo. Yeah, trying to find some stability again yeah. almost. Yeah. Yeah. Which we kind of said that. If you could summarize Renaissance, we'd say stable. Mm -hmm. I think neoclassicism was getting back to that. We've kind of, Rococo, Baroque was all this silliness to them. Mm -hmm. And it's how do we get back to what's stable, what's, what's tangible, what's real, what's intellectual. And they failed. Yeah. They did. They failed. And so the, the root of Romanticism, in case you were wondering, is uh, the archaic Romant, which literally means tale of chivalry. And so romanticism, one of the elements of it that we're going to talk about today is this idea of trying to escape. Hmm. So chivalry as being these noble ideals, but in a sense they're 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 totally not real. Like they're they're there's this advent the sense of adventure and this sense of the uh, ethereal otherworldliness of things. But it that's that is drawing almost entirely from this sense of disillusionment that they had having, you know, tried to find stability in human ideals and then those things becoming decadent and corrupt, as corrupt and decadent as the things that they had hated in the mm -hmm. church before then. Exactly. And then they reject that and try and get back to it again. And it's like it just keeps on failing. And this, this, this collective humanist endeavor just continues to fail and come up short. And so then you have the romantics who are finally in some sense saying, well, can we just escape from all of these attempts at organizing and controlling reality through human institutions and endeavors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so you know, I love this quote from Caspar David uh, Frederick, but he describes the romantics and the emphasis they placed on emotion by saying the artist's feeling is his law. Um, you know, and, and like Michael was just saying, we kind of go through this back and forth, back and forth, rationalism, irrational you know, stability, drama, intellectual emotion. And we're back with an emphasis on emotion. We're back with an emphasis on what is man. Man is not just intellectual. He is emotional and he is a being who, um, for the romantics, was created by God um, and is to be in relationship with God and in harmony with God's creation and with other men. And so we're going to kind of focus in specifically on uh, this idea of nature in Romanticism. Uh, the Romantics saw nature as the reflection of God. When you look at a, a landscape painting in Romanticism, 
they're communicating something about God and how they have depicted landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, really they're, they're, they're concerned with, uh, well, what's happening right now in the Romantic era. You know, we're in the 18th century. We've kind of transitioned into um, America uh, the romantics, the ro- romanticism was happening in Europe, but it was directly affecting the art in America. And so, romanticism kind of has started in, you know, Europe in the 18th century. But come 19th century, it's transitioned into America. We have this newfound land. It's unmarked by, you know, industrialism. But the industrial revolution has started, and man is progressing and society is modernizing. And it's also just a time of great growth and uh, Americans are thriving. And the romantics are creating art that is in response to this industrial revolution and the scientific rationalization of nature. And really their whole intent is reminding the people that you are doomed to corruption if you forget your God basically. If you forget this land that God has given us and you turn from that and you destroy it and you modernize and you industrialize and you're going to forget God. You're going to forget the church. You're going to forget man's relationship to God. Yeah, there's a, and it's interesting when you look at the romantics, whether they are Christian or whether they're unbelievers, they all do tend to have a major focus on nature. The romantic paradigm or the romantic era was very much interested in nature, but it does seem like the Christian who's looking at nature in the romantic era is saying, you know, civilization is creeping west out of the east, this coal-choked industrial cities that our children are dying in is starting to, you know, eat up all of the virgin land going west. And so you have your Daniel Boones and your other guys who you know are, who move a little further west when they can see the the smoke from their neighbor's fire rising into the air. Um, you know this is how much space they want. So you have that spirit, that idea of like, can we just get into the untainted virgin uh, land and of nature that's a little bit west of us? And the Christian is looking at that and saying, we have tried to disconnect ourselves from God through all of our devices, through all of our inventions, through civilization. The city is the place where people cut themselves off from God. Mm-hmm. And so nature is this fading connection to God that we're brutalizing and f- shaping into our own image so that we can avoid this direct confrontation with God and his grandeur. The unbeliever is looking at nature as a terminal object of trust and faith and grandeur. So it's like, whether you're a Christian romantic or an unbelieving romantic, you're looking at nature uh, in this relationship to the divine. The Christian says nature is a connection to the divine. The unbeliever says, no, nature is the divine. Right. Nature has become the God that we must worship. And in either case, you're going to have this attitude that we need to free ourselves from the corruption of civilization. It's become corrupt, and you see that. You know, it's, it's, it, is, it is destined to corruption. No matter how we try to fix it, whether we focus on the state or focus on the academy or focus on the church or focus on the whatever, as long as we're in this city of God, city of man state, the city of man and the city of God are all going to become the same thing. 
a corrupt city. The problem mm-hmm. is the city, <laughs> right? We got to get away from that. And, and so they want to escape. They want, yeah, they want to escape, exactly. And so you have this this uh, fascination with noble savage, the idea of the noble savage, the idea of untainted and unaffected land and the untainted and unaffected person. Right. Right, that, right. that comes up. Which really is kind of getting us back to the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. They loved, the Romantics loved the idea of an Edenic land. America was Eden to them almost. It was untouched. And the Romantics are kind of saying, let's maintain this. You mm-hmm. know, it's, it is, you know, this virgin land, like you were saying, this, this place of Eden. And let's not corrupt it. And if you, if you continue on in your industrial ways and you've forsaken nature, a.k.a. God, you are doomed for corruption. Right. This will no longer be an untainted land. You will taint it. And I think in that, connected to that, you have this, if civilization is the problem, if any time you get more than one person together, they mess things up. Right. <laughs> right? Like whether it's family, state, church, whatever it is, you start creating institutions and things just start dissolving, falling yeah. apart, corrupting, becoming terrible. Well, then what do you need to do? You need to follow your own path. You need to cut your own, you need to pioneer your own way. You need to, you know, become self-reliant and follow uh, the the direction that's in your own heart. Be an individual, right? And so, you have a movement away from collective humanism. I mean, just think about it. You've you got all the tended gardens and cultivated uh, spaces of the, of the Baroque and pre-Romantic mm-hmm. time. It you, then you move into the Romantic era and Frederick Law Olmsted comes in and rather than having these geometrically patterned open spaces, he creates like Central Park right. or, uh, you know, the uh, Gardens Biltmore, at the Biltmore. Right, which to him, he's like, I wanted to mirror the best that nature has to yeah, offer. that God has offered us. Already. Right. So it's like when you go out here, I want you to just see nature as it is. Right. I don't want you to see nature as man has crafted it. And... That, that, that attitude in the romantic towards like a rejection of civilization. We're rejecting anytime two, anytime two or more are gathered together, corruption is in their midst. Right, That's right. the idea of romanticism. Yeah, just depravity. Right. It's just depravity. And so then you have all of the, you have this movement. I mean, you think about, oh man, all of the novelists and writers and poets that, 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 are, that come about in the romantic era. It really is the age of the novel, the age of uh, like poetry really starts right. to become massively important. And you have um, all of these people pretty much are recluses. Mm-hmm. Like the Bronte sisters, you know, like Emily Dickinson, yep. like, uh, you know, but even, even people who became really popular, William Wordsworth, um, Walt Whitman, yep. that, uh, you know, they, they were famous for their isolated treks into nature. What that means then is if civilization bad, individualism good, they're thinking the reason is because civilization corrupts and the individual with nature can have this untainted, unbroken connection to God in nature by himself. Right. Soon as more than one gets together, things start falling apart. Right. Well, they had no idea where that was going to go. But... um, but we we will <laughs> we will yeah we will talk about it because uh, not even not even a hundred years later you have this just absolute fragmentation uh, into radical individualism. Yep. 
And we'll talk about that because that's sort of the heart of modernism. You can see the seeds of it starting here. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about some of these representative artists. Um, Like, for instance, uh, the Hudson River School was a really important landscape painting school. Right. Um, Tell me a little bit about that and about Thomas Cole and how that relates to both this collectivism, individualism, their relationship to nature, and their relationship to the exotic or this idea of escape, desire to escape. Absolutely. So, Thomas Cole, uh, an American painter, he uh, is known for his landscapes and history paintings, which basically history paintings are a depiction of historical events. But uh, he was born in 1801 in America, and he was the founder of the Hudson River School up in New York. And the Hudson River School was an American art movement uh, consisting of American landscape painters who were passionate romantics. They loved nature, and they wanted people to be connected to God in nature. Um, So that idea of individualism, go escape from the industrial society, do not forsake God, go immerse yourself in nature with Him, um, and have this sublime, this kind of um, awe, almost life-threatening moment with God in nature. If you just go spend time in nature, you will encounter God. Well, tell me this idea of the sublime. That's a really important concept in the the romantic era. What is is sublimity? Like, what is the sublime in their their terms? Yeah, Yeah. so so the the sublime to them was that kind of um, life or death encounter with God. You know, so if you're if you're standing on a cliff and you are looking out at the expanse of nature and you take one step and you fall to your death. It was it was kind of that that mo- that emotional impact that landscape could have on you. That it is equally um, it is beautiful. It makes you feel whole. It brings uh, comfort. It brings stability. Almost it, it connects you in an intimate way with God and. Nature was like nature could kill you. You could you could fall from that cliff and die. It had power. It had control. And so, nature was to them a reflection of the character of God, mm-hmm. a God who is who is love, who is intimate, who is pursuing and inviting us into His space, and a God who was powerful, um, who we should be in fear of. And so, would you say they connected that to the idea of the fear of God as being? Not really just abject terror, but a fear that was also connected to a reverence. Yes. Like in the face of majesty. Yes. Like that's the response right. you have right. to majesty. I think I think if when you're standing on that cliff and you see the beauty before you, you're in awe of who God is and his creation, the beauty of that, the majesty of it, reverence. And you're also fully aware of the fear of falling off this cliff, mm-hmm. the fear of God. It was this it and was your a, own smallness, your, like exactly. a sense of your Beautiful own insignificance way to put it. Yeah. in the face yeah. of that. Yeah, it was, it was. It was a humility. There's a humility when you immerse yourself in nature. Look how small I am. Look how grand God is mm-hmm. and, and what his creation, his creation is grand. Um, it is to, it is to draw us in and to like, in, you know, to encompass us. And so they wanted that for their their viewers. They wanted to remind their viewers, go, go be with God in nature. Go allow yourself to be immersed in his presence and to embrace his beauty um, and his majesty and his, you know, his presence and his power. And 
So Thomas Cole, the founder of the Hudson River School, was really kind of, you know, leading the way in this. Um, Thomas Cole uh, was a self-taught artist. He was an avid reader. He taught himself how to paint. And, and by and large, he is most famous for his landscape paintings. Thomas Cole was consistently drawing his viewers back to nature. His works, in a sense, are kind of a, they're kind of like theology. You know, honestly, it's, he is trying to remind his viewer of who God is and who, who man is through a landscape painting. And that's really powerful. You know, most people will see a landscape painting on a wall and they're like, oh, cool, nice landscape painting, you know. But for them, it was, no, this is communicating something. This isn't irrational. This isn't just emotional. This is, this is teaching you something. We're trying to teach you something in our landscapes and showing you the beauty of God's creation. And we're inviting you in. Do not forsake it. Come back. And so it's really, the Hudson River School was just inviting people back to the American land that was untouched by, you know, the Industrial Revolution. And so Thomas Cole, uh, this was his, this was who he was. Um, He wanted people to enjoy nature, to enjoy God, to know nature, to know God, to glorify God. In some, we see this depicted in a series of paintings by Thomas Cole called The Course of Empire. It's five paintings. Thomas Cole painted them from 1833 to 36. And um, they're really a reflection of, you know, what's happening in America at the time. And it is a kind of a dialogue on fearing what will happen to civilization if their, you know, gluttony and their prosperity um, continues on, it will, you know, it it will inevitably be the the decay of humanity. And so, basically, Thomas Cole is going to have a dialogue with his audience about this in this series of paintings. And so, the first painting is called the Savage Savage State. Um, it's really the you know natural land. It's it's beautiful. It has this you know the sun is rising. It has um, this big mountaintop in the back, and it's just untouched land. It's, you know, kind of resembling the Garden of Eden. It's mm-hmm. just, it's impeccable, it's powerful, there's clouds swarming, and you're kind of just in awe of creation in this first painting. Um, you move then into the second painting, which is called the Arcadian or Pastoral State. Um, you start to see the settlement of people taking place, animals are grazing. It's kind of, it kind of reflects the pre-urban Greco-Roman life. Humanity um, is kind of beginning to appear and there's peace among them. There's peace among the land and they're starting to cultivate themselves on the land. They're starting to create a society. The third painting is called The Consummation of Empire. And really it's, a, it's an image of metropolis life. There's huge architectural structures, there's colonnades, there's balconies, there's people dressed in, you know, elaborate attire. Um, and it's, it's showing us the flourishing of society. It's people enjoying themselves. It's, it's the beginning of that prosperity and kind of that indulgence of life. And gradually, you know, you can kind of start to suspect, well, society's growing, civilization's mm-hmm. growing, and they're pro- and. And really, you see less and less nature in this painting. There's like no nature left except for the water where the society is built on. It's on the coast. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you're kind of getting that, Thomas Cole's kind of alluding to, 
they're forgetting God, Mm -hmm. they're forgetting nature, and they're consumed with themselves. Mm -hmm. And we get to the fourth painting, and it's called Destruction. And this is this is kind of the climax, you know. They they hit their peak in society, and now they're destroying themselves. They're gluttoning, their idolatry, their prosperity is completely turning on them, mm-hmm. and and they're basically paying for it. They're paying for their consumerism, their materialism, their lavish lifestyle, and they're and they're paying really for the rejection of God and nature. And so we have this scene of just warfare and there's women screaming and falling off the balconies into the water and there's fire and destroying all of these beautiful marble structures. And it, it's really that representation of depravity. Man, man has lost its mind, sin has taken over and it is destroying itself. And then the last painting is desolation. And, and we're back to this calm scene of nature and you see some of the marble structural structures. Their ruins. Yeah, it's kind of their ruins. You know, there's some columns standing, but you see the vines starting to grow on the columns and the atmosphere is calm. There's no people. The water is still. The sun's kind of, it's starting to set. And all along in each of these paintings, you have that mountaintop mm-hmm. that we, that I mentioned in the first painting. It's, it's there in each painting and it's Thomas Cole's, representation to them that God's been here all along. Nature was always here. Nature always saw. It was always present. And 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 he's kind of saying, God gave you up to it. You chose this way of life. And and look what happened to you. You rejected nature. You rejected, you know, aka God. And look at what you've done to yourself. And he, he was always there, and we see that in desolation. He's still present. The, the mountain is still present. Nature is still present, and it's reclaiming its territory. So it's really—I mean, it's it's a five paintings that really sum up romanticism mm-hmm. and what they're trying to communicate to their people, fellow Americans. You know, don't forget where you've come from. Don't forget uh, why we're here. Don't forget a gift that this American land is. Um, and all of your prosperity and modernization, come back, remember God, be with Him, glorify Him. There's, an, there's a problem inherent, though. It's not necessarily a problem that Thomas Cole himself was consciously trying to uh, promulgate. I think that the effects or the consequences of a lot of his ideas, though, there are some problematic upshots to that way mm-hmm. of thinking. And I'd like to talk to him uh, about that a little bit. I would like to talk to him. I'll have to wait. <laughs> That'd be awesome. I, I, I think that Thomas Cole is a devout believer. I have no, I have no doubt about that. But there's, there's some issues. So, like for instance, course of empire, course of an empire, no, right? Course of empire, meaning this is the inevitable course of, of empire. all empire, right? Meaning all attempts. Now, maybe you could say Thomas Cole is saying. You know, but what I'm talking about is empire that is human-centered, like a, you know, not kingdom of God-oriented, but kingdom of man-oriented. And that's how Augustine would have put it. But I don't think that's really what mm-hmm. Thomas Cole is saying. I don't think he's saying there is the empire of God or the kingdom of God or the city of God. They don't use those kinds of analogies to talk about the progress of God's work on the earth. In, in the Thomas Cole idea, and really the romantic idea generally, and again, he lives in this time, so he's going to be affected to some extent by the general disillusionment 
that is going on concerning institution right. and civilization. Like people are disillusioned with the success of the institutions that they had been submitting to that have sort of lost their legitimacy through years right. of decadent corruption. So he's seen it, like right? He's giving you sort of a time lapse, at least, of the empire, the course of the empires he's been looking at. Mm -hmm. You know, there's also a lot of archaeological digs around this time that have also opened up these, this idea that, that the ancient ruins, right, like the pyramids or, um, you know, uh, whatever, all the different monoliths that are out there, and they're in ruins, you know. And so you have right. the, the poem Ozymandias um, about this, this failure of civilization, sort of the inevitability that all civilizations, no matter how glorious, are eventually going to collapse back into dust. Hmm. Um, it's and it's it's ubiquitous. It's inevitable, and right. it's never different, no matter what empire it is. Right. And so it's like, okay, uh, great, Thomas Cole. What's the solution? What's the answer? What are we supposed to do? Are we just stuck in this right. inevitable cycle? Right. And he doesn't offer that. And he doesn't offer any yeah. solution. And so a lot of people just made up their own solution, and their idea was, okay, let's escape. Then, mm -hmm. like, let's escape. So during this time, you do have the rise of fantasy. Really long novels, mm -hmm. really long novels. Mm -hmm. I mean, people had time to kill, and they wanted to kill their time because they're trying to escape. Right. So it's like, here, let me give you this story, and you can read it in, you know, like Middle March by George Eliot. I don't know. Right. It's, you know, and these serial novels start rising. Yeah. And you have, you have Dickens and other social justice type people around that time who were trying to, trying to speak to the evils of civilization while at the same time attempting not to exit civilization. Mm -hmm. And see, that's that's where you have this tension in romanticism. It's like, well, if you totally escape from civilization, that's great for you, Thomas Cole. Go out there on your lone right. mountaintop and enjoy nature. Right. But that means your voice in civilization is no longer there. Right. And you're actually contributing to the inevitability of its corruption. Right. Because you're leaving. And so, I mean, in a sense, Thomas Cole was the Benedict option. Let's just leave and find the good life you know, right. outside of this corruption. Right. It's like maintaining utopia, which right. was non-existent. <laughs> right. But even still, it's like, oh, but we don't want to be too civilized. Right. Because if it is too civilized, you know, that'll be bad. Yeah. But also at the same time, you know, we have to have some kind of rules. You see what I'm saying? Right. So it's like there's Well, this and civilization's not going to stop. No, it's not. So That's again... The so the nature you're trying to escape to right. is just going to get cut anything. down. Yeah. You yeah. know, like eventually the city's going to creep into the west where you're living and then right. it's going to hit the coast and there's no place else for you to go. Right. And, um, and so it's like, how do I keep civilization from destroying nature that I love and really just good things generally... Mm -hmm. Without and and actually be in it, right. you know, like I don't want to be in it, but I have to be in it right. to keep from it for to keep it from destroying the thing right. I would be escaping right. into, right. you know. Right. And so there is, and that's that still the reality today. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> we want to escape. Yeah. I mean, especially living in a city, you get tired of it, and you want to go on your week long beach vacation mm -hmm. and escape, and you know, or and, just go and, to Central and life, Park, right? You know? And life, but <laughs> life keeps going, and you come back, and there's still busyness, and there's still chaos, and there's still so much brokenness, and we can't escape, mm -hmm. and we're not supposed to. Mm -mm. Jesus didn't want us out of the world; he wanted us to engage with the world, mm -hmm. not be a part of it, and that we are are the world, but we are cultivating it. We are partaking in what is happening, what's being said, what's being spoken. Our our involvement 
matters. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to what we talked about. As Christians, we have to be at the forefront of civilization, of culture making. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't escape from it. Though we want to protect ourselves from its corruption, we you cannot. Can. Because what happens when they did, and this did happen in the Romantic era, and so the people who have a real investment and a real interest in uh, human life and human flourishing, they leave. Mm-hmm. They, they just exit. They escaped that, that, those positions and left those positions to people who really didn't know what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And, and so you have this rise of like the administration, you know, the mass production of church and state. Um, because people who are uh, powerful feelers, powerful thinkers, powerful uh, with powerful wills are all out in the meadows writing poetry to you know meadowlarks. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that yeah. that's, I'm not saying that's the that's the worst thing they ever did, but in some ways you do see that is what happened from that escape, mm-hmm. from the drive toward escape, is you had people who sort of abandoned their responsibilities to be salt and light in a civilization that was corrupt and that was destroying things and that was moving very, you know, very much against God. And it's like, but you know what? It's not for you in this lifetime to just leave that and go and enjoy yourself in your own little private space because your private space, if if you want to protect it for the next generation, you're going to have to have some voice in the civilization that's coming at it. Mm -hmm. And it's weird. I feel like we're in a very similar situation again, right? I mean, there, there, there are similarities to that today. And I do recommend to artists, you know, like, I know you want to escape. I know it's overwhelming. I know, et cetera, et cetera. But you have to stick it out mm-hmm. in your church. It's a mediocre church. Great. Make it less mediocre. Invest in the community. Invest in, in, in it and make it healthier. Mm-hmm. Make it better. It's possible to do that. Right? Is right. it? Is it possible to do that? That's the thing. Is that's the question. That's the question that everyone's going to ask. But is it possible? It seems like that yeah. has failed over and over and over again. You know, and so we're about to see the modern age is the age of cynicism, yes. where it's pretty much Literally. everybody loses hope altogether that there's any possibility of civilization really doing anything. You know, it, it's important to understand that it really is. The, the, the escapism of the mm-hmm. Romantic Age that set up for that. Mm-hmm. Because you had the exit of all, the only people who might have been a voice there. So, yep. you want to sum up the Romantic era? There's just so much to talk there's, about. Again, there's so many artists. We didn't even touch on William Blake. But I feel like a lot of what we said can sound kind of Debbie Downer. But, <laughs> um, you know, the Romantics, they were passionate. They were emotional. Um, but they cared about... They were concerned with what was happening, and that was the Industrial Revolution, Scientific Revolution, you know, all of these changes to society. And the Romantics, they didn't want to lose themselves in the midst of it all, and they didn't want to lose their relationship to nature or to God in the midst of all of that. And I think we have a lot to learn from them, um, you know, and it's finding that balance of being engaged, cultivating culture, aware of what's happening in the times, speaking into it, speaking truth into it, and returning to God. We cannot forsake that. We do find God in His creation. How do we find that balance of— Being in the world and being, not of the exactly, world. Exactly, exactly. And that's still— That's still the challenge. That's still a conversation we have to have today. Yeah. Um, you know, and so 
visit the orphans and widows in their distress and remain unstained from the world. It's like right. these are very hard things to do right. at the same time. Right. And so that really kind of is the romantic era. There's so much it's and it's all commentary on that. How do we how do we do this? Um and so we'll see, you know, things are about to change, but mm-hmm. uh but there is hope, you know. It's not all just terrible things no. and wanting to escape and slash Totally not bashing anyone who takes one week vacation to the beach. No, no. I love vacation. Do it. Rest is good. God ordained Sabbath. (laughs) There's a sense in which we have to avoid the triviality. Escapism is different than escape. Escapism is different than relief. Right. Uh, There are times when you're weary, when God gives you comfort, and he takes you into a level place for a period of time so that you can regain your strength. Exactly. There is a sense in which in order to go back into the fight, you have to be refreshed. But that's very different from this attitude of, I I want to exit altogether. I want to remove myself altogether. First off, there's an assumption there, and maybe it's an old assumption, that you're not part of the problem. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but you take yourself off into nature, guess what? You're just bringing part of the problem out there. <laughs> and, and you know, you'll find that out soon enough. It's also important to understand that the romantic blend of, of the rational and emotional and their idea of the sublime are really good ideas. They are. That we should continue yes. to consider. Yes. Because one of the things that our art as the church has lost is sublimity, mm-hmm. is the idea of the sublime. If you look at Thomas Kincaid, Thomas Kincaid is Thomas Cole with no fear. Right. It's Thomas Cole with no majesty. It's Thomas Cole with no terror. That's good. You yeah. put you put the terror and the fear back into it, and all of a sudden you start regaining that idea of the sublime. And that combination is a really important combination yeah. in the scriptures. Yeah. What does it say in Psalm two? Rejoice, you peoples, in trembling. Hmm. Rejoice in your trembling. Like what? that. You know, <laughs> right. it's like how do you do that? You know that that there's a combination of those two things that the fear of God really is both adoration and terror. Right. And it's joined together in one emotion. And that is the sublime. And the romantics pinpointed that. Yep. And it's very worthwhile exploring that that combination in their work. Right. And how can we continue to do that in the art we make today? Totally. Yeah. All right. So we're going to close this episode with uh, another piece from Phil Hodges on the guitar. And we hope you enjoy it.
What you just heard was Moonlight Sonata by Ludwig van Beethoven. <laughs>